following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Everybody feeling good? In the hood? (laughs) Here I'm trying to be cool and I'm just 17. What's wrong with me? Hey, I want you to keep a number in your head, okay? Everybody say 5,392. Keep that in your head. Now, you know why I want you to keep that in your head? That's the enrollment at Abilene Christian College, ACU. David still slays Goliath. That's all I'm going to say about that. I looked that up today. Y'all didn't like that, did you? I looked that up today and I thought, it's the little foxes that spoil the tender branches. We're, we're trying to beat a Wisconsin. We're trying to beat somebody in Michigan. And we let Abilene Christian University come in here with 5,392 students and say, we got you. Checkmate. Thank you very much, Abilene Christian. Now go back and be Christians. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We're going to get better. We're going to get better. Say, we're going to get better. Now, I'm going to change. I'm going to change right now. I heard a preacher say the other day, it's the time of the year that we need to get our ask in gear. <laughs> Don't misunderstand me. Our ask, A-S-K, in gear. It's time to invite people to the house of God. People love to go to church on Easter. And so you need, yeah, go ahead and clap your hands. So you need to start throwing the gospel net, the grace net, and say, hey, I got a church, I've got a pastor that sometimes is cool, sometimes crazy, but he will preach the gospel to you. And we've got a music program that's second to none, and the presence of God is in the house. And we'd love for you to come and experience Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. And you you can do that. You know, anybody can ask somebody to come to church on Easter that doesn't go to church. Austin is still a very unchurched city. When I came here in 1990, I think 2% of Austin was attending church, and I know that number has gained measurably since then because churches have been planted all over Austin. But I really believe that it's time to get our ask on and start asking people to come to the house of God. Don't be ashamed of your Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your church. And don't be ashamed of what they're going to experience here. It's going to be good for them. Come on, clap your hands real big. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Now, I'm going to get right into the Word here today because I have something to preach to you today that I think is very important and very right for the time. Last week we talked about what drove Jesus to the cross, and it wasn't our sins, it was our value to Him. It was our value. And I enjoyed preaching that to you today. I want to speak another subject that I think is very important to all of us. We call this series The Road to Redemption. The Road to Redemption. There's a big old wide highway, but there's a cross in the background, and every man is going to come to that cross. And the cross begins everything for us. If you read Exodus chapter 12 and you see when the Passover was first instituted for Israel, you understand that when they instituted the Passover and slayed the lamb, it was the first day of the first of the month of the year, the first of the year. So everything began for Israel with Passover. Everything begins for Christians with the cross. That's our Passover. And so we're going to celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate it because without the cross, 
there's no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Aren't you glad Jesus went to Calvary for us? Aren't you happy for that? Now I'm going to ask you to stand up all over the house. I'm going to preach probably till about five minutes after 12. Honestly, I know, I, I, I know how long I preach. If I preach longer than that, I'm really excited. If I preach less than that, I need to get more excited. But if I go five minutes over, it's still not time to get out of church yet. We dismiss at 12.15 officially. But I've always allowed you to go home early because, <laughs> because I don't think I have to hold you forever. A sermon don't have to be forever to be enduring to your life. And so I want to preach today on this subject. You ready? I'm going to call it Frustrated Grace. Frustrated Grace. When I started writing my second book several years ago, the title of that book was going to be Frustrated Grace. Now, a lot of people think frustrated grace is one thing, but today I'm going to tell you what frustrated grace is all about. And we're going to preach the grace of God. Everybody needs it. Say, Pastor, I need it today. Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Ephesians 2 said, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Romans 3 said, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 2 and 21 is where I draw my text today. I do not frustrate grace, the apostle Paul said, the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Everybody say, God, let grace be preached and received today. Grace is simply the freely given unmerited favor and love of God. It's something you don't deserve and you get it anyhow. Amen. You get it anyhow. You may be seated. Grace is mentioned 159 times in the Bible, 37 in the Old Testament and 122 in the New. The Bible did say in John 1:17 that the law came by Moses, the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law was etched in stone by God through Moses. It was God's finger. Somebody got an amber alert out here somewhere? <laughs> God saved that child. Ten commandments were principles for the Jews. The law had no power to save. And has no power to remedy our lost condition. After the law was given, we are still sinners. We're still transgressors and we die. The law is totally impotent. It really is to deliver from sin. The Jews were just a chosen people. While Moses was on top of the mount receiving the law of God, the people were dancing. Unclothed in the valley. In open promiscuity around a golden calf. The righteous preaching of Noah for 120 years while he built an ark saved not one convert. Only his family, eight souls, were, were saved. Lot, a preacher of righteousness, was a pastor, was a mayor, and had even emissaries from heaven in angelic form at Sodom. And there was not per one person in Sodom that changed their life. And when the death angel flew over Egypt, all one had to do was put the blood on the doorpost 
And the angel would pass over. It's why it's called Passover. The Israelites with their law lived 430 years in Egypt. And there was not one home, not one that looked to God through the blood who lived in an Egyptian home. Years ago, Dwight Moody was in Chicago when the Chicago fire broke out, the great evangelist. And Moody was speaking of how it devastated both the rich and the poor. And I thought, that's the condemnation of sin. It affects everybody. Sin is universal. It's like a fire that destroys a city. And we all need something to save us from our sins. However, humanity has sought to rid itself of the curse also ends in abject failure. We can't deliver ourselves from it. We never succeed. We're still sinners. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sins with fig leaves in Genesis. The righteous Noah preaching had an open door in his ark. He didn't even get to shut it. God shut the door and not one person entered in outside of his family. Whatever man has tried, his inability to rid himself of sin is universal and it's ever present. I don't think there's anything more amazing in the Bible than the things that I just mentioned to you about great people and great moves of God in the Bible that happened. In the book of Revelation, God reveals to us the coming millennium for a thousand years. You can read it in Isaiah chapter 11. According to the word of God, the world is ruled over by Jesus Christ himself. And Satan is tied by one angel with one chain and dropped into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. And at the end of that 1,000 years of perfection and holiness and following Jesus, Satan, who has been bound, is loosed for a season. And the greatest rebellion in the world has ever known occurs. The end and ends in the ultimate and final judgment. There is no converting power in the law. None whatsoever. Seems to me that after Satan had been chained for those thousand years, perhaps he'd come out of that long fall and he would repent. But the penalty of the law just confirms us in our rebellion. Then what is the purpose of the law? Glad you asked. Romans chapter 3, Paul explained it. He said, it's to show us our weakness. It's to reveal to us our sin and our helplessness before it. And to lead us to Jesus, to the grace of our Lord. Aren't you glad that grace is in our picture today and not just law? God has great purpose for us, folks. He desires us to be sons of God and no longer slaves to this world and be heirs and joint heirs with Christ. He causes us to sit in heavenly places with him. Do you know where you're sitting today? You're in a heavenly place because wherever God's spirit is, is what heaven's all about. Amen. We're having it on earth here today. God elevates us. He leads us to the grace of God. I want to make a statement today, and I don't want it to hurt your feelings, but law and grace cannot exist in the same house. One's got to go. One's got to say goodbye. You can't be law one day and grace the next. You can't be law on Monday and grace on Tuesday. You can't be grace when you need help in law when you're judging others. Come on, somebody. Help me preach a little bit. John 1 and 14 said, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 1.17 said the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus came to do, folks? He came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He fulfilled the law. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the man that 
was a perfect man. He did what no man could do. He lived in perfection for 33 years. Went to the cross as a perfect lamb of God. Took our place, died for us so we could experience his grace and live for him in grace because it is his grace that saves us. If some of us think that, you know, I need God to help me, but God also needs me to help me. I need to help God. And some of it is us and some of it's God. Then we take the glory because we say, I did it when it's good and God did it when it's bad. Let me illustrate. Somebody gives you a home. You walked out of the church today. Somebody says, I got a $500,000 home. I'm going to give to you today. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Let me give you $1,000 at least just for your trouble. And so the man or the woman finally says, okay, that's fine. I'll take the thousand. And you boast. You go off boasting. I bought a $500,000 home today for $1,000. God's so good. No, he's better than that. You were given a home. And if you want to tithe a little bit, that's your business. But he were given a home. It's all God. It's all what has been bestowed upon you. You don't tell anybody, I got a steal of a deal. I stole that house for $1,000. No, no, no. It's a gift from God. And it's a free gift from God. So Romans 11 and 6 says this, if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And if it's by works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. That's hard to understand. Read that about 10 times. You might get a hold of it. By grace, we are saved. Say, by grace, we are saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's something God has done for us. You know, I love Ezekiel. I think Ezekiel was one of the coolest prophets that ever walked on the planet. Because Ezekiel prophesied. You know what he prophesied? He prophesied in Babylon. He prophesied. His first prophecy was along the river Chabar. In chapter 1, he saw visions of God where everybody else was hanging harps on the willow. And they couldn't sing a song in a strange land. But Ezekiel looked up and had an open heaven above him. And he wrote this in Ezekiel chapter 36. He wrote 36 eyes in Ezekiel 36. And here's some of them. This is God speaking. said, I had concern for my holy name. I will sanctify my people. Listen to what God says. I will take you from among the nations. I will sprinkle clean water. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I gave to your fathers my love. And I will be your God. I want you to say three words with me. God does it. God does it. This thing is about him. It's not about me. I didn't find him. He found me. I didn't get saved by myself. He saved me. Come on, somebody. He filled me with the baptism of the Spirit. I didn't get there by myself. Alex Haley wrote a book one time called Roots, and he made a statement. He said, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, he didn't get there by himself. I'm looking at a lot of turtles here today. And you didn't get to where you are today in God by yourself. Somebody picked you up. Somebody dusted off your shell. Somebody washed you down with water baptism. Somebody put you on top of a post and ballast you and said, now stay there and love me every day of your life. And I'm declaring to you, that's what I'm going to do because I understand the grace of God has appeared to all men. And we're feeling it today in this house. Ah, you're a trophy of grace. Jesus died for our sins and that's the essence of faith. That's the essence of the gospel. See, I'm going to go a little over now because I'm feeling it. Everybody say Calvary, Calvary is the real deal. 
We're saved by grace. Unto him who washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him be glory and honor forever and amen. Law brings fear. Fear of being lost. I was raised in a legalistic church and I was always afraid I was going to miss the rapture. Now I can't wait for it to happen. I'm not going to miss it. Grace brings favor. Grace brings favor. Everybody say grace brings favor. So there's a little boy in the house and he's got a mother and the mother every morning gets up and said, gracious God, help me. My son's, my son's lost it. He won't shine his shoes. He kicks the toe out of them. He won't comb his hair. He won't tie his tie. He won't even bathe. He's a ragamuffin. That's what he is, God. And she threatens him. She hits him with the flash water. She swats him with a house shoe. She takes a belt every now and then. And, but after she gets through, he's as uncouth as ever. But one day, out of the blue, he bathes. He shines his shoes. He puts on iron clothes. He puts product in his hair. More than brill cream. He ties his tie in a thousand different ways. And he puts deodorant on and a little splash of Old Spice. You know what happened? He's fallen in love. He's fallen in love. He's fallen in love and that remakes our life. That's what Christian living is. That's what grace living is. Why don't you just do me a favor and say, Jesus, I love you today. Come on. Why don't you fall in love with him this, this season? Why don't, during this Easter season, why don't we fall in love all over again with Jesus? Come on, somebody. Help me preach right now. Don't sit on me with this. You may have had a bad marriage, but Jesus is the reason you can have a good life. You may have lost your job, but Jesus is the reason you'll find another job. You may have had kids that despise you and walked out on you, but Jesus said, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. You need to fall in love with Jesus Christ this season and say, I will never fall out of love with you again. I read about a little mayor in New York named Phil Rello Lagardia. His first name is very hard to pronounce. He's five foot four. One of the favorite mayors, they named an airport after him up there, LaGuardia Airport. He was five foot four and he was always kind. He loved kids. He gave candy away to kids. He blessed people. He'd walk up and say, I'm your mayor. Look down here at me. <laughs> I loved it. And so one day it snowed real bad in New York City and the paper couldn't be delivered. So Mr. LaGuardia went on the radio and got all the cartoons out and read the cartoons to the kids over the radio. That's pretty kind. That's pretty graceful, isn't it? But one of the greatest things that he ever did, he went to a night court in New York one day and he walked in and saw the judge was a little tired. He said, why don't you go home? I got this. And he sat in the judge's seat and he was going to judge those petty criminals, those $10 or 10-day criminals. And so the first one that came up to him was a little lady that had stolen a loaf of bread in a store and they had arrested her and brought her into his court. He said, ma'am, how do you plead? She said, I plead guilty, sir. He said, you know, you know that I'm going to have to punish you. You know you're going to have to do the time, pay for the crime. You know that. She said, yes, sir. He said, $10 or 10 days. But when he was saying it, he was already reaching in his pocket and pulling out the $10 bill to pay her way out of that situation. 
Then he had an idea. He looked around the room and he saw some of these guys he had seen before in that, in that courthouse. He said, anybody here ever, ever had some grace and some mercy in your life? And some of them raised their hand. Yeah, this is not my first time here. He said, you got 50 cents on you? You got a quarter on you? Pull it out. Let's take up an offering and collect it for this woman. Let's get her out of here with a pardon today. And all those old boys that had been forgiven themselves started giving money and started blessing the cause. And they had more than enough to give the woman. They gave her enough to get her out of prison, out of jail. And they gave her enough to go buy a loaf of bread. <laughs> what I'm trying to say, folks, is this. Listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus Christ knows that sin had to be punished. But he didn't make you be punished for that sin. He went to the cross for you for himself. And he, the, the ordinance were nailed against him or nailed on the cross to him. And he took your sin and he took your pain and he took your hurt so you could live a free life today. Why don't you accept that? Why don't you clap your hands and say, I can get out of jail free today. I'm free today because the grace of God has paid the price for me. There's no dynamic in the world like the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. I read about a lawyer that tempted the Lord one day and he said, how do I enter to the kingdom of God? And the Lord said, well, do you know the commandments? He said, yes, Lord, I know them. Love you, Lord, to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yeah, that's right. And Jesus started telling a story. He started telling a story. And the story he told was about a man in Luke 10 that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And they stripped him and they robbed him and left him for dead. They beat him. And the Bible said a priest came along. Now, a priest represented the law. A priest represented the Old Testament law. A priest came along. And he saw him. He saw him and he kept walking. Because he knew he didn't have what it took to get him up. The law can't save you. Then a Levite comes by and the Bible said he looked on him. Not saw him, he looked on him. There's a difference in looking and seeing he went and examined him. He went and checked him out to see if he would fit in the synagogue that he was a part of. See if he was up to par, up to snuff, so to speak. See if he was able, if he had something to give or if he was just going to be a loser in the house. And when he looked him over, he walked on and said, nah, can't do anything with him. But then a Samaritan came. And the reason Jesus pointed out a Samaritan because he was hated by the Jewish people and hated by the Gentile people because he was right in the middle. And he wasn't loved by any, either factor, either faction of either side. But he came and he got off his beast of burden and went down into the ditch where the man was and poured oil on him and wine in him and raised him up and put him on his own beast and took him to an inn. <laughs> Hallelujah. And he gave the innkeeper two pence. And he said, take care of him. Take care of him. I believe that was grace and truth. I believe that was healing and salvation. I really believe it was. And the next morning when he departed, see, he didn't even wait. He didn't leave that night. He waited till he was all right the next morning. That's what grace does. Grace is not a one-hit wonder. Grace will wait and see if you get up the next morning, see if everything's all right. And then grace said, I will be back. I will be back. I will be back. And when I come back, I'll repay you for what you have to spend above and beyond that. That's what grace is. You see, some people want a one-hit wonder. They want a spiritual experience. But grace will get up with you every morning. And mercy will light your day every day because his mercies are new every morning. Come on, somebody. Help me preach right now. You need grace. You need grace to pick you up. 
You need grace to put you on a beast. You need grace to take you to a house. You need grace to bless you. You need the grace of God in your life. And that's what I'm preaching about today. Somebody say amen to that. And that's the gospel this Easter season. Grace. One of love. One of grace. One of forgiveness. One of favor. One of heaven. Everybody counts in grace. And now for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to preach to you something that I feel very strong on my spirit. The day law and grace squared off in the Bible. The OK Corral where the Clantons met the Earps in Tombstone, Arizona happened in your Bible. Law and grace. But there was a new sheriff in town. And his name was Jesus. It's in John 8 if you want to read after it. Story about Jesus meeting a woman caught in the very act of adultery. First question I would have asked if I was there because I probably would have been leaning toward the law. I'd say, where's the man? Many believe that this woman was Mary Magdalene. I believe that too. From Magdala, out of whom he cast seven spirits. And early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery and when they had set her in the midst, verse four, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Don't get squeamish on me now, I'm gonna preach the gospel to you. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, we sh that she should be stoned. John 1, 17, the law came by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Had the Pharisees stopped right there, they might have gotten away with stoning that woman. They would have had every right to stone her because God's law decreed, even demanded that she be stoned. There's a man in the Old Testament that was stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. He was stoned. People got stoned, not with drugs. They got stoned with rocks. <laughs> Judgmental people often have the law on their side. They're not simply opinionated, loud-mouthed, but they were tied into the will and the word of God. They were keeping God's commandments. They were keeping their city clean. And they were keeping their religion pure. But like most judgmental people, they did not know when to shut up. They just keep judging. Just keep talking down. When their grip, with their grip tightening around the stones, they were about to hurl at her. They asked Jesus four pivotal words. And here they are, but what sayest thou? They weren't going to give any grace to Jesus either. Judgmental people, strict legalists always oppose grace. They didn't realize that by asking him those four words that they were giving grace a chance. <laughs> and when you give grace a chance, look out. Look out, grace is gonna start your day. Grace is gonna start you a new life. Grace is gonna bless you like you've never been blessed before. Somebody needs to give the Lord a thunderous applause today. Somebody gave grace a chance one day. The Pharisees thought they were sealing her fate, but they were actually altering her fate. They were not sealing her death warrant, but they were sealing her, spirit, her spiritual redemption with Christ. Grace had come out of Jesus. Grace would cost him something. The Pharisees, those judgmentalistic peeps, said, they said this tempting him that they might have to accuse him. They wanted him. 
not so much her, they wanted him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger rolled on the ground as though he heard them not. Excuse me, guys. Grace turned a deaf ear to their legalistic mindsets. Grace didn't entertain negativity. And grace didn't partake in pessimism. Jesus stooped. Leave it up there. Jesus stooped. You know why? Because he got beneath the radar of legalism. Hello. And he also got down on the level where the sinner was. Because legalistic people always speak down to you. And they always talk about their sin being lesser than somebody else's sin. But all of us have been laying right there in the street, right outside the temple, needing grace in our life. And when you meet Jesus, he'll get under the radar and he'll get on your level and he'll start speaking to you a language only grace can give you and you'll understand by grace. Grace is unashamed to look sin square in the eyes. Grace stooped down. Grace is designed to meet you where you are. So here's what I wrote about it. Grace got down and dirty so that the down and dirty could get up righteous and clean. give me a basketball. I'm ready to dunk it. Hallelujah. Jesus wrote on the ground. And here's why I believe he wrote on the ground. Here's what I believe he wrote on the ground. When I was in my 20s, when God gave me this a long time ago, I believe he wrote in the sand the sins of the men that were standing there, which he knew the Pharisees and others were guilty of. But you know what? It hit me when I was a little older. That's not, God, that's not grace's way. That ain't how grace does it. Then when I was in my 30s, I preached this all over the country. I believe he wrote in the sand because of carving in his words in stone so that, instead of carving his words in stone, so that the winds would blow and wipe away the words he had written. And the next morning they'd never be remembered because they'd be washed away with footprints in the sand and the blowing of the wind, trampled underfoot, scattered by the wind, made minuscule as sand. But it, when I was in my 40s, I... I got the final illumination and I'll die with this one. I'll meet the Lord with this one. But I'm going to ask him why he did it when I get there. But I believe he wrote in the sand to prove that a sinless Christ would stoop down and dirty his own hands. Trying to reach for and defend the worst of sinners he had ever met. So when they continued asking him, verse 7, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Judgmentalists kept pressing even when grace had them beat because they refused to see their own sins, only hers. Never wanted to help her out of sin. He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. The only one among them truly qualified to stone him, stone her that day, didn't have anything in his pockets. I wish I could pull my pockets out. These new jeans won't let me. <laughs> he had no stones on him. I carry a thing a ranger gave me in our church. and It says never leave, never leave a comrade or never let a comrade be in need. 
I carry that for y'all because I want you to understand that I'm for you. I love you. John 8 and 8, and again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground the second time. Jesus was willing to get his hands dirty a second time because he was saying, I'll be back down here if you need me anymore. None of us are going to be perfect till the Lord comes. We're all going to need his grace again. I need your mercy. I need your grace. Come on, help me now. You're going to need that grace. You're going to need that grace again because grace is more than a one-time event. John 8 and 9 said, And they which heard it, being convicted of their own sins and their own conscience, went out of them, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even to the last. They departed according to their age, the physical age and the age of their sin, the oldest sin to the most recent sin, the sin they had to think about to remember, and the sin so fresh they could not forget, they could not help but recall. And this is the saddest part of the story, and I'm not far from closing. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. The woman was left standing in the midst of all the judgmentalistic men, in the midst of her accusers, the midst of those who wanted to see her stoned, those who wanted her dead, in the midst of legalists. Grace caused her to stand in the middle of it and be strong. Can I, can I say this and not overreach and overpreach? But I don't care what you've come out of. I don't care what your past is. I'm not looking at your past. I'm looking at where you're headed today. And I want everybody that has been forgiven by the grace of God to be able to stand and look right back at those that would want to judge you and say, hey, you didn't save me. What you preach can't save me. I found Jesus and he turned my life around. He's baptized me with his spirit and I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus and I will stand. I will stand in the middle of your judgmentalism and declare Jesus is my savior. Oh, hallelujah. Grace will cause you to stand up. Grace, well, some of you are here today and you're saying, why did I even come to church? Because you needed to hear what I preached today. Grace will put you back on your feet. Grace will strengthen you. Grace took her from cast down at Jesus' feet to standing on her own two feet. But Jesus was left alone. This is the sad part, the saddest part of chapter 8 of John. They departed from grace. They frustrated grace. Because you see, the grace that he had given to her, he would have applied it to all those men that also needed it that day. But they were so angry because they thought the law was it that they walked away and left grace frustrated because grace couldn't save them. Grace will frustrate you if you're a legalist and you'll frustrate grace if you are a legalist because all of us, say it all of us, need his grace. And when Jesus, verse 10, lifted up himself, please don't leave me now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close this so, so wonderfully for you today. When Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw 
he saw none but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Jesus called her woman. Randy, if you'll help me. He called her woman. I'm going to be very brief here. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When God put a deep sleep on Adam and pulled out of his, out of his inner being a rib. And when Adam awakened, there was a woman standing there, pure, innocent, undefiled. And the first Adam sinned and they were kicked out of the garden. But the second Adam or the last Adam was Jesus Christ. There'll be no more Adams. He was the last one. But he reached inside of him and pulled out grace and gave it to her. And when Adam called Eve woman, Jesus, when he called Mary woman, was saying, you're as pure as the one that came out of Adam's side because the grace of God has come out of my side and has given you a brand new start. Sin, she was as much a product of grace as anybody that he ever put his life into. My life, your life. And she was a lady that was at all four, in all four gospels at the tomb when Jesus was resurrected because she never got over the grace of God. You'll never get over it. He said, woman, where are your accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? I never hear a prayer prayed. I never hear a favor asked. I never hear a plea for mercy. The moment others try to withhold grace from someone, though Jesus feel personally responsible to get grace to them, the mosaic mindset, she was caught in their fervent attempt to catch him. She was caught in their most fervent attempt to frustrate grace. You know, somebody asked me a long time ago, said, Pastor Rex, I got, a, I got a quiz for you. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? And one day I was thinking about that and I said, what a stupid question. <laughs> so presumptuous. As to think, something makes a sound only if somebody's there to verify it. Likewise, some people think God only does things for people if they're there to see it and hear it so that they can believe it. Others heard him that day. Others heard him that day and left with grace because that's the overflow of his grace to one. And if I'm preaching to one soul here today, one person here today, I want the overflow to touch all of us today. I want you to leave here with no stones in your pocket. The days of stone throwing's over. No stones. We all need the grace of God. We all need the help of God. No stones. No stones. I pastored in Dallas when I didn't know how to spell pastor. For seven years, it was a college to me because I, everything that I would ever have to go up against, I went up against it in Dallas. Everything would ever happen, even the loss of my family, anything that ever happened, happened in Dallas in those seven years. And God prepared me for my journey of pastoring. The second church I pastored was a, a very seasoned church and there were, there were legalists in that church. There were people that came up to me one day and 
when some folks found Jesus and received the Spirit in their life and came up to me and said, what you gonna do with them? I looked at him and I said, I might make him a board of directors. <laughs> what do you mean what am I gonna do with them? Well, they don't fit here. Come on, somebody. And it made me long to go someplace where grace would be accepted. And God landed us in Austin in 1990. And the first, the first person, the first big conversion was a man named Larry Wilson. Larry, if you're listening, I love you, big guy. I love you. He walked across from the AA meeting over here. He was an alcoholic. Walked in our church on a Wednesday night, came in to me crying. I thought he wanted money. And I said, I'm gonna send you home and I want you to come back tomorrow when there's no, when there's no crying. I want you to just come with a sincere heart and I'll lead you to Christ. And my staff bedded me a hamburger that he wouldn't show up. And I, when he showed up, I said, how many hamburgers is that now I get? <laughs> I led him to the Lord, I baptized him. Later that day, the Holy Spirit filled him. I mean, he got, he got, he got the dose, he got the dose. <laughs> Fabulous guitar player. They gave him Larry Wilson Day many years later. He was a part of this church for a long time, married a woman that thought she is God. She was new age, thought she is God. Then she discovered there was a God and she wasn't it. And God saved her. And Larry taught Jeffrey and Larry taught Phil how to play the guitar when they were little old boys. And now these young men are playing like nobody's business because Larry Wilson became a grace project. Give me two more minutes. This is important. And then a, a woman that was a high-class call girl, African-American girl, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. I mean, she'd pop a crick in your neck. You know what I'm saying? God, what was that just walked by? A Buddhist. Husband on the lamb, a drug dealer, knew nothing, but had a grandmother that prayed and she found God. And when I laid hands on her the night she received the spirit, she said to me, I'm the worst you'll ever lay hands on. And I said, and I am the, I'm representing the best that'll ever touch you in your life. And when my best met her worst, guess who won? I'm preaching grace today. And Simon, who came in 98 and asked for forgiveness, God gave us three major blessings, just poignant moments. I sent him back to Dallas nine years later, full of the spirit, water baptized, living for God. Hey, grace works. Grace works. Stand to your feet all over the building. You're incredible people. Lord, it's two minutes from the regular dismissal time. So I want you to raise your hands all over the house for me right now. And I want you to say, Jesus, I want your grace. I need your grace. I need abiding grace. I need the amazing grace. I need the sufficient grace. I need the grace that only you can give. 
God, I need that grace today. Throw your hands in the air and the people are going to sing. The praise and worship team is going to sing right now. And we're going to go out of here praising God today because he loved us and his grace is with us today. Come on, lift your hands. Come on. Covered, covered, covered. Here we go. Come on. Nobody leave right yet. Come on. Nobody leave right yet. Come on. Covered, covered by his grace. Covered, covered by his grace. Covered by his grace. I choose not to frustrate the grace of God. But if righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. Come on. Come on. He's a graceful God. He loves you. He loves you. Love him back today. Love him back today. Oh, no matter. No matter where. Lord. I need your grace, Lord. I need it today. Oh, you watching my television, I need grace today. I need grace today. I need his grace today. I need your grace. I need your grace. I need your grace. Lift your hands. I was an 18-year-old boy, and I was devastated one day by a loss. A loss. I was devastated. Tears were coming out of my, out of my eyes and running down my cheeks. And a preacher, a preacher that I didn't know, saw me. He came over and put his arms around me. He said, son, you know Jesus, don't you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, you're gonna have a lot of these losses in your life. And he squeezed me close to him. He never was my pastor. I hardly knew him, but he became a hero that day when he said to me, God's always here for you in your losses. And he'll always cheer for you in your victories. Because God will be with you always, even to the end of the world. And then he said, son, that's his grace. That's his grace. That's the first time I'd ever heard that word, grace, preached to me in that fashion. So I'm telling you today, God's with you. God's for you. His anger is for a moment, but his grace is for a lifetime. God's with you today. And I bless you in the name of the Lord. And we're on a journey to a place called Calvary because Calvary made the difference in our life. Thank you for being here today. If you'd like special prayer, 
I'm going to open up these altars. I'm going to dismiss the congregation now. Thank you for your kindness and your generosity to let me preach the gospel today. I love you. Wednesday night, we're back in church. I'll see you Wednesday night. You that would like special prayer, come on down. I'll bless you in the name of the Lord right now. I'll bless you. I'll bless you. Amen. Amen. Amen.